0: Hello, this is Joseph Scholz. Welcome to the Deep Culture Podcast, where we explore culture and the science of mind. I am in Tokyo. I am here with Yvonne Vanderpol, who is not in Tokyo. <laughs>
1: I'm definitely not in Tokyo, that's for sure. <laughs> we still have all those travel
0: restrictions, and yes, I'm living in Europe. Well, Yvonne, this is the 12th episode of the Deep Culture Culture Podcast. It is the final episode of season one. We'll be off in August and starting season two in September. How does it feel?
1: Wow, it's amazing. It's a year since we started on this project together, and I've been really happy to connect with listeners in different countries and to have these conversations with you, Joseph. One of our main goals was to connect with cultural bridge
0: people in different places to build community. So for this episode, we won't be focusing on science or theory. We're going to look back on the vision that started this podcast, and we're going to hear the voices of several cultural bridge people. Some set off on a cultural adventure, but we'll also hear from someone raised in a multicultural environment with no choice but to be a cultural bridge person. Yvonne and I will tell our stories as well. And what we all share and what we share with many of you listeners is this experience of navigating between different cultural worlds. And that brings us to part one,
1: Edward Hall and the Cultural Bridge Person.
0: I remember recording the first episode of this podcast last year, Yvonne. Uh, there were terrible storms in Tokyo. Uh, the pandemic was starting to rage out of control.
1: Yes, it was not a lighthearted
0: episode.
1: <laughs> Maybe we can listen back.
0: Yeah, let's listen back. That's the sound of rain outside of my apartment here in Tokyo. We've had torrential rains this year. There is a global climate change crisis. It is a dark time around the world. We're in the midst of a global pandemic with millions suffering in every part of the world. A time when we need to come together to solve humanity's shared problems. But you know who I find inspiring right now? It's Edward T. Hall. For Hall, superficial appreciation of other cultures is easy. It's interesting. But deeper intercultural understanding requires more than that. Cultural difference is not just a set of customs. It represents a different way of making sense of the world, of valuing, of being ourselves. We've talked about Edward Hall on this podcast more than once.
1: He was a visionary, the father of the field of intercultural communication. And we had listeners say that they were inspired to be hearing about Edward Hall's work again. Hall thought that intercultural understanding is harder than most people think, that you had to undergo a sort of inner transformation.
0: You have to let go of your attachments to the way you look at the world. Well, that sounds very Buddhist when you say it that way. Although I think oh, yes. he was looking at it, <laughs> I think he was looking at it from the perspective of the unconscious mind. You know, he said that we have an unconscious attachment to our cultural view of the world, which which he called extensions.
1: And he thought you need to experience other cultural worlds to even become aware of this attachment. Experiencing cultural difference can kind of wake you up, but it's not necessarily easy. Okay, but before we go too deep, let's back up, Joseph. Who are we talking about
0: here? Who is a cultural bridge person? Well, everyone knows what it's like to be part of different social worlds. You could feel like one person at home with your family and feel like someone else with your friends at school. And that gap, is what makes you a bridge person because you're going between these different worlds.
1: But certain people have to navigate between different cultural worlds at a really
0: deep level. Yeah, and it's not so much being a world traveler as it is living and functioning in different cultural worlds. I mean, it could be an expatriate who's living in a foreign country or working abroad, but it could be a migrant or an immigrant who has come to country. could be someone working internationally or working in an international environment. Or sometimes you hear about what are called third culture kids, which is someone who grows up in many different places around the world.
1: Yes, and of course, some people live between different cultural worlds without traveling internationally. Think about people with a multicultural background, whose parents are immigrants or have a multicultural family, or people who grow up in a minority community, religious, ethnic or racial minority.
0: When you live between different cultural worlds, you face a certain dilemma or contradiction. It's a feeling of being connected to different worlds, but you feel this kind of distance. I mean, I remember after being in Japan for three years, I went back to visit my family and one of my brothers said, "'Oh, so Joe, how's Japan?' And I started to talk about my experience and he listened politely for a minute, but then he changed the subject. He just, he couldn't really relate. I had discovered this other world in Japan, but there were people back home who couldn't really understand my experience. Sounds like an odd feeling. But you too, right? I mean, you grew up in a small town in the Netherlands, and then you went off and were living in a village in Central America.
1: I can recall similar reactions when I was back. People are interested in your stories, but only to a certain extent. And can they really grasp what happened to you? I must say, I often fell alone in dealing with how I had changed, like reverse culture shock coming back home. And everything is familiar but at the same time looks different too. So we could say on the one hand, you experience different worlds, but on the other hand,
0: you have to manage these different worlds. And there can be hard choices. You you discover new places, but you want to have roots too. And how much should you adapt yourself to a foreign way of living? Or what if your values change and your family back home doesn't understand? Or maybe... Your partner has no idea about the cultural world or worlds that you grew up in. Or maybe you spend huge energy learning a new language and trying to fit into another society, but people still treat you like a foreigner. So you want to connect, but you may feel separate.
1: And this is why I like the term bridge person. Because if you are a bridge, you can feel connected even when there's a separation.
0: So as Edward Hall knew... These things could be hard, but there are a lot of rewards.
1: And that brings us to part two, the voice of experience. Speaking of experiences... The introduction of your book, The Intercultural Mind, Joseph, talks about the deep cultural experiences of the students you teach at university in Tokyo. Could you read that section to us?
0: Sure, be happy to. I love Tuesday afternoons. That's the day I teach 40 or so international students from more than 15 countries about cultural difference and adapting to life abroad. Many are study abroad students living abroad in Japan. Others have international backgrounds. Perhaps they've moved around the world with their family or have parents from different countries. Some have not traveled much, but aspire to international careers. They share stories about their experiences, cultural surprises, the excitement of foreign places and people, cross-cultural misunderstandings and the ups and downs of intercultural stress. At the end of each class, I have more energy than when I began. That's a lot of cultural experiences. It's very intense to hear about these experiences. And I do talk to them about this idea of being a cultural bridge person. I'll, I'll have a student say, you know, when I heard you talk about being a cultural bridge person, I thought, yes, that's what I am. It's as though putting a name to this experience is very meaningful for them. And often they've never had a chance to talk about them in this way with anyone. Wow, that's really great for them. It feels like family because I feel connected to their stories. I've been living away from where I grew up for more than 30 years. It gives me energy to hear about all of their cultural adventures. And I'm really sympathetic to all their ups and downs. Yes, and I wonder though, are young
1: people growing up with the internet and social media having a different kind of intercultural experience? It's quite different from when we started traveling and living
0: abroad. No, that's really true. When I first went to Mexico, I was not physically that far away, but it was really uh, like being in a totally different world. And what are your students saying these days? Well, one thing I hear is that popular culture online can be a first step towards this deeper kind of cultural exploration. So let's hear from one of my students. This is Ami. She's ethnic Malay from Singapore, fascinated by Japanese culture from a young age.
2: Hi, everybody. My name is Amira. You can call me Ami. And I'm from Singapore. So um, I'd like to talk a bit about my experience being a cultural bridge person. So i um, I guess my experience started since I was really young and it kind of take place at my own home, actually. So um, I, I come from a Malay family. So in Singapore, Malay is a minority. And everyone in my household loves watching, well, Malay dramas, basically. And um, on the other hand, there was me. <laughs> um, I started watching um, Doraemon at first. And then I watched Krayon Shinchan. And then I realized I actually like um, Japanese media more than Malay media. So, so, but at the same time, I do enjoy Malay classical dramas and movies. So it's not like as if I was discarding my own culture. So that's kind of uh, being a cultural bridge person for me. is trying to renegotiate all these um, boundaries that society kind of sets upon us. Like, a Malay person has to like Malay culture and things like that.
0: And one of the interesting things she mentioned was feeling a cultural difference between generations.
2: One of the most memorable experiences that I had was when I was speaking to my grandparents, actually. So my grandma, uh, she she went through the Japanese occupation in Singapore. Um, And her experience wasn't really that good. And then I had my late grandfather, who did not experience the Japanese occupation. In fact, he was in Japan when the war happened. He was a sailor back then. And um, seeing these two very, very different experiences happening in two different countries, it's, it's a really interesting thing. These experiences, I would say, they, they really have affected me in a way. It kind of gave me a very different sort of worldview different experiences opens my eyes to so many different possibilities it has really influenced how i look at my life in the future i don't intend to just stay here in my country and i intend to go all around the world if possible meeting friends that i've met along the way and um if possible settling down in another culture and yeah we'll see how that goes yep thanks for listening.
0: Yeah, and there's this very optimistic feeling to her story that I like a lot. You know, you can really feel that she's inspired to want to go out and explore the world.
1: Well, this feeling of discovering the larger world, that reminds me of your
0: interview with Karen Hill Anton. Well, and in case any listeners missed episode six, check out my conversation with Karen Hill Anton. She was one of my first intercultural role models. She wrote a weekly column for the Japan Times, Crossing Cultures, and she recently published a remarkable memoir that talks about her life adapting to a rural farming village in Japan.
1: One of the things she talks about is this feeling of cultural discovery when she first left the United States. That was before the internet or social media, of course. When you left the country, you really entered into another
0: world. Yeah. So let's take a listen back.
3: When I was 19, I went to Europe for the first time. Just took off. You know, the whole world opened up as far as I was concerned. I hitchhiked, you know, the length and breadth of France and Spain Germany. I went to Belgium. I went to Denmark, I think, twice. Um, I also went to, to Morocco just for a short time, but I I, I ran. I felt like I was running all, all over the place in, in a way, taking it all in. It was just so exciting, and I just absolutely loved it.
0: In your memoir, you said, the first experience of living outside the United States changed me in ways I don't even know how to describe.
3: Probably, I would say that I realized that there was so much more than what I had been exposed to, I saw, interacted with, and, and could appreciate that there was an entire world of ex of experience, of art, of food, of clothes, of ways to live, um, communicate that I had no inkling of before. I felt I could absorb it like a sponge almost, and everything. And meaning for me, I was definitely very much affected by by absolutely everything that, that I was experiencing.
0: I like this feeling she gives of wanting to drink everything in. You know, she says, I could absorb it like a sponge. Of course, we know intellectually that foreign places exist, But experiencing them directly is really powerful. Things
1: are very different now, of course. And there are some people who grow up between different cultures from the beginning. It's another very intense kind of
0: bridge person experience. Well, let's hear from someone like that. My student, Trustin. He's a bridge person to the core. I talked to Trustin during my office hours, when lots of students would kind of come and hang out and talk about their experiences. And they often have very intercultural backgrounds, but they haven't had a chance to talk about these things before. Let's, let's take a listen.
4: So I was born in Singapore to Hong Kong Indonesian parents. Since then, I've lived in a lot of different places across Asia. I spent some time in Jakarta, as well as my hometown, which is Chirabon in West Java, Indonesia. I also lived in Shanghai before studying in Hong Kong. And I recently came back from a year-long exchange at uh, Keio University in Tokyo, of course, and Yonsei University in Seoul. I'm now learning Thai, and uh, I speak Mandarin Chinese, Cantonese, and Bahasa Indonesia, apart from English. So as you could see, there's this really... uh fusion and even a mix of different cultures that I've been exposed to throughout my life. When I was in K.O., uh, this is the first time I actually see or experience uh, the topic of culture being discussed in class, especially relating to cultural adaptation. This gave me a lot of opportunity for reflection.
0: Yeah, I asked him if he feels like a citizen of the world
4: it's like this swinging between the feeling of being a global citizen and also being a citizen that belongs nowhere uh, from people that I've met in Japan and also other places, people who are born to parents of different countries or people who have been living uh, away from their home country for a long time. They also tend to develop this feeling of belonging to nowhere. And sometimes I do feel the same way.
0: I also asked him how it is to belong to different cultural worlds and if he's able to bring them together.
4: It's already hard for me to sort of reconcile these different social circles. So what I do is instead of like switching back and forth or instead of trying to create an integrated circle, I try to keep my worlds separated so that so that I could keep the same persona when I am interacting with any one of my friends. But not have this sort of confusion or contradiction when different circles merge together. So I actually prefer not to introduce my friends to each other because of this.
1: That sounds like a
0: real challenge to manage those different social worlds. One of the things that we talked about was his future and I asked him, well, you know, do you want to settle down?
4: In terms of my future career or my future lifestyle, I I do dream of life where I could be I will have a certain degree of freedom, not being confined to a particular geography. It does take a lot of resources. You must be in a in a career or in a professional position that allows for movement between geographies. Yeah, I do need to work hard if I want to do this. In terms of settling down, the more important question is not where in, but who with. And since I do not feel I need to be Fixed to a specific place, Uh, I do not have to be uh, living in my home country for the rest of my life. I think this actually is even better because it gives me a certain uh, degree of flexibility to move around or I could settle down in a foreign place as long as it is with someone that I feel comfortable with.
1: It's interesting how being a bridge person opens up new possibilities, but it can also create difficult choices. And that brings us to part three roots and bridges.
0: Well, now that we've listened to these stories, Yvonne, I'd like to hear more about your experiences.
1: Well, I can relate to the process of discovery that all others describe, although I still live in the country that I was born in. I've lived abroad, traveled extensively, and work interculturally all my life. I was born and raised in a typical Dutch polder, one and a half meters below sea level. Boskope was the village I grew up in. And in spite of being small, it's renowned for its nurseries and apples, grapes and plants, my grandfather and father worked in their own tree nurseries surrounded by narrow ditches. So in fact, I grew up on a small island and the ditches on all sides were prominent in our lives and even in our sayings. As a child, the first thing we got to learn was not how to cycle, but how to swim, as the water was a constant threat. And Niet in zeven sloten tegelijk lopen, don't walk in seven ditches at once, is a typical saying indicating to be cautious and self-responsible. Despite it being a small island, the sense of community was and is still very strong. If someone asked me my name, it would be phrased as, of whom are you? Asking for my family name, not my first name. I was an insider in the community, but always longed to spread my wings and discover the world, which I did. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I've worked internationally for NGOs, lived in the USA and Costa Rica, moved in various places. And all these experiences have influenced me in many deeper ways. And even if I'm in the village where I grew up, I still have this experience of a bridge person. I'm insider yet outsider at the same time over time, sometimes it has created tensions, but I also experience this being interesting and and complementary and Next to my family, I'm also bridging with my foster daughter, a second generation migrant daughter with parents from Ghana, so yeah, reflecting about where is home for me. I of course strongly feel that my roots are in the land that my grandfather and father worked on almost a century. And well, actually that soon will be solved because there's no successor in the family. But that's where my roots are. And that's not necessarily where home is now. Home is mostly where my partner is, my cats are, my garden is. So I feel connected to my roots and I'm also an outsider and home is, well, where the heart is.
0: That's really powerful, Yvonne. And you grew up with a nursery, which is plants with roots in the ground. And you grew up with these canals and bridges on this island. So you truly grew up with deep roots, yet with bridges to go out and see the world. And it sounds like, like for many bridge people, The place where you have the deepest roots may not be the place that you currently feel is your home.
1: I feel that has been the metaphor. This land has been the metaphor also for, well, maybe my life, roots and uh, bridges. What about you, Joseph? You grew up in the United States. You lived in Mexico for several years. You lived in France. But you've spent many years in Japan now. Have you settled down?
0: it's hard to give a single answer. So what I did do was take a walk in my neighborhood and I thought about the question, where is home for me? Let's take a walk near my home in Minami Otsuka. It's in central Tokyo, but an older neighborhood, not a trendy part of town. That's the sound of the Sakura Tram. It's one of the only two streetcars that still exists in Tokyo. It runs through my neighborhood, just down the street from my apartment. Sakura means cherry blossom in Japan. And in fact, my street is lined with cherry blossom trees. So in the morning, I sometimes come out onto my balcony and I can hear the birds singing in the cherry blossom trees. And if you walk down my street and turn right at the tram tracks, in about a hundred meters you'll find Tenso, which is a Shinto shrine. It has a cedar tree with a blackened trunk that have burn marks left over from the firebombing of Tokyo. In front of the shrine there are narrow shopping streets. When I moved in there was a third generation shoe store that originally sold geta, Japanese wooden sandals. That closed and now it's a pharmacy. There's also a second-generation hardware store that recently went out of business. But my dentist is a third-generation local resident. His father and grandfather were both dentists. There's also a shop selling monaka, which is a traditional Japanese bean paste suite. That's been around for more than 70 years. Around the corner from the shrine, there's Titans, which is a new craft beer pub. And off to the right, there's a new halal market. One of the only mosques in Tokyo is a couple blocks over. There are five Vietnamese restaurants, four Indian restaurants, a McDonald's, a Burger King. There's Riddle, which is a specialty coffee shop that sells kombucha. Last fall, I got stuck in California. I couldn't come back to Japan because of COVID restrictions. When I did make it back, the husband and wife that run my local bread shop, it's called Sun Road, they asked me about how it felt to be shut out of this country, even though I have permanent residence status. I mean, I got caught by changing regulations. If I had been a Japanese citizen, however, I would have been allowed to enter. I like high context living, means having lots of background information when there's rich detail that you share with others. I want to live in a neighborhood where I can feel that. I love knowing local shop owners. I can't quite explain why I get satisfaction from the simplest interactions in my neighborhood, like checking out my groceries at the local supermarket. And somehow, I'm still very pleased that interacting in Japanese feels so natural to me. All of this really is a different world from where I grew up in San Diego in California. After having spent years discovering new places, I find having a neighborhood deeply gratifying. So part of me wants to go out and explore the world, but part of me wants to have local roots. But I think both of those desires reflect a need for connection. Sometimes people ask me, can you ever really be accepted in Japan? The language is really hard for English speakers, and of course I don't look Japanese, so people want to know, do I feel at home here? My standard answer is, I am at home as a foreigner in Japan. I'm well adapted. I'm an insider here. Of course, I'm always an outsider too. So what does that make me, an inside outsider? an outside insider, I do still feel out of place sometimes.
1: When we first started the podcast, we promised to give it a try for six months.
0: I remember that we had no idea if anyone would even listen. Are we going to have, you know, like 22 downloads? But we've had great responses and we've got thousands of listeners
1: and we've made it through 12 episodes and there's a lot more to do. Next season, we'll continue to dig deeper into the science of culture and the mind, special interviews and lots getting
0: planned. So to make this happen, we are expanding the podcast team. We've got an amazing group of bridge people collaborating to bring you the Deep Culture podcast next season. Rob Fritz, of course, who does the sound design and has been with us since the first episode New to the team are Zeyna Matar, Danielle Glintz and Ishita Ray. We are grateful to have them with us. So thanks to the whole team, we're looking forward to working on season two together. Season two will start on September 15th. Please let us
1: know what you'd like to hear in the coming season. And most of all, thanks to everyone who has spent time with us this year.
0: The Deep Culture Podcast is sponsored by the Japan Intercultural Institute, an NPO dedicated to intercultural education and research. I am the director of JII. The book we quoted from is The Intercultural Mind, published by Intercultural Press. Also, you can now hear the Deep Culture Podcast on YouTube. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Do a YouTube search for Deep Culture Podcast. Also, there are transcripts of the Deep Culture Podcast. We've been hearing from educators who are using them in classes. That's great. You can find them on the website of the Japan Intercultural Institute. Just do a web search. You can also learn about online courses and JII's Learning Circle. You can become a member of JII. If you like the Deep Culture Podcast, recommend us on Apple Podcasts. And if you have an idea for a future episode or just want to get in touch, please write us at dcpodcast at japanintercultural.org. Thanks again to our sound engineer, Robinson Fritz, our podcast team, Zaina Matar, Danielle Glintz, Ishita Ray, and another shout-out to Karen Hill Anton. Check out her memoir, The View from Breast Pocket Mountain. And a special thanks to my students, Trust in You, Amira Binte Amiruddin. Thanks to all the members of JII and, of course, Thanks to you, Yvonne. It is always a pleasure to connect with you and share this time with you and our listeners. Thanks so much for hanging out with me during season one. And I'm looking forward to season two.
1: Thanks, Joseph. Wonderful to have worked with you throughout the season. Let's have a break now for summer and see you all in season
3: two.